Hey, Jay, do you remember that time Elixir gave Vanisher a brain tumor in the shape of the X-Men logo? Vividly, despite my best efforts. Did he ever get rid of it? Oh, yeah, Elixir healed it later. But that didn't stop Vanisher from showing up again, claiming it was still there. Was it still there? It was not. Uh, Turned out he just had... A sinister agenda? Untreated syphilis. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 390 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to an episode about some comics I'm really excited to talk about. We're doing another X-Force episode, and I think we can officially say that this John Francis Moore Adam Polina era of X-Force is really good. Yeah, I, this is the second time X-Force has shocked us by being the hands-down best comic of the line. Yeah, yeah, that was the case in the early 90s for a while. It seems to be the case again now. I'll take it. I mean, there's some other good stuff as well. Like, I like X-Men and Uncanny X-Men. I mean, there's Generation X is fun. But well done, X-Force. Well done, newish creative team. And, like, we knew more was good, and we knew Polina had potential. Like, he, his start was shaky, but something in this arc, like, they just click, and the whole book goes to a whole new level. Yeah, and I mean, don't get us wrong. We're not saying this is, like, up there with the Dark Phoenix Saga or God Loves Man Kills. I mean, it's just an arc of a comic. It's during Operation Zero Tolerance. It's not, you know, life-changing or continuity-changing, but it's just some really enjoyable, solid storytelling. It's really good, it's strong, it's consistent, which is, I think, a huge factor in this era. And yeah, it feels like an X-book should feel. Yes. Hell yes. Okay, well, we have a lot to talk about, so we should dive in. But perhaps first we should talk about what got us to this point. Who the hell is X-Force? Okay, so X-Force lives in the X-Mansion. They're sworn to protect a world that hates and fears them, and their lives are equal parts soap opera and punch-a-rama, much like the X-Men. But they're more extreme, and they're mostly younger. That mostly younger part is due in part to the team consisting of a bunch of former New Mutants, who were the X-Men's former junior team. Some of those kids made the transition directly from New Mutants, for example, Sunspot, Boom Boom, and Richter. Some of them, like Mirage, didn't. In her case, due to having joined X-Force's terrorist-leaning arch-rivals, the Mutant Liberation Front. But wait! It turns out that Mirage is a double agent having infiltrated the MLF on behalf of S.H.I.E.L.D. But only she and the readers know that. Meanwhile, gentle giant Caliban has been having seizures, and grizzled time cyborg team leader Cable has been sticking around home to look after him. So Team Wine Mom Domino, freshly back from her own miniseries, is helping Team Deputy Leader Siren run things. Uh, There's one member missing from the current lineup, and that is Warpath. He's been captured by the weirdo Sledge who has a mission for him. In exchange for being put in touch with one of the few surviving members of Warpath's mostly murdered reservation. Also, Shatterstar is there. Uh, His backstory recently got extra confusing, but mercifully, we don't have to worry about that for now. All you need to know is that he and Richter are definitely an item, even though they're not allowed to quite say it explicitly on the page. What we do have to worry about is Operation Zero Tolerance, the mysterious international anti-mutant organization that's been taking advantage of the current anti-mutant climate to take down every mutant individual and team they can. Now, two of the issues that we're looking at are technically before OZT starts for real, and two are fairly late in it, but it's one cohesive story, and honestly, I really appreciate the extent to which this isn't tied to the rest of the event. Yeah, that's something Operation Zero Tolerance seems to do decently. Like, you're going to get a lot more by reading all the books, of course. You're going to see all of Bastion's different machinations. But every book kind of has its own thing going on. We saw a little bit of that in Onslaught for some of the books, but here they all stand alone relatively well. Which brings us to X-Force number 67, Standoff. This issue is written by John Francis Moore, penciled by Adam Polina, inked by Mark Morales, colored by Steve Bucciolato, lettered by Richard Sarkings in Comicraft, and Colia Fuchs. Now, we're alternating between a couple different storylines here, so we're going to separate those within individual issues. Eventually, they'll cross and meet up. But for now, uh, let's see what X-Force proper is up to. Well, it starts with a tradition I have missed in X-Force. 
a gratuitous mention of the place and exact time the scene starts. St. Louis, Missouri. The Wakeman Oncological Research Center. Saturday, 8.23 p.m. At first I thought this was the place where Siren and Deadpool were held and where they found out about the whole Benjamin Russell thing, but no, that's the Weissman Institute. Weissman Institute, Wakeman Research Center, entirely different, same comic. Now, there is currently a hostage situation within the Wakeman Oncological Research Center, but since that hostage situation involves Alpha-class mutants, specialists from out of town show up to take over for the cops. And those are specialists in now familiar black and fuchsia outfits. That's right, it's Operation Zero Tolerance. Alpha-class mutants. Okay, so, spoiler, the Mutant Liberation Front are the ones holding hostages— I don't really know that Alpha Class means anything specific the way that Omega Class does as far as mutants. I don't know. It just sort of gets thrown around at random. Like, I don't know if the MLF, really any of them are powerful enough that they would be any kind of fancy class. I assume that most of those terms mean different things in different agencies. Oh man, that makes things so confusing, which I guess really fits bureaucracy. Well, especially Marvel bureaucracy. Especially Marvel bureaucracy. Well, speaking of bureaucracy, this cell of Operation Zero Tolerance is led by a woman we haven't met before, that being Commander Ekaterina Gryaznova. Uh, she is a great big jerk and a pretty good villain. We'll see a lot of her in this arc. So the folks who've taken the Research Center hostage are the MLF, the Mutant Liberation Front. We've seen a few different generations of this group. Who are they these days? Well, they started out as Strife's henchmen who were terrorists going for mutant rights, then they were Rainfire's henchmen doing basically the same thing. Strife and Rainfire are both gone, so these days they're kind of doing their own thing. Uh, in the current membership, we have Wildside, a sadistic jerk who can alter reality, or at least people's perceptions of reality. We have Dragoness, who used to have dragon wings and now is just a lady in a bikini. More on her later. Haven't seen her since X-Men number 15. Wow. We have Forearm, who has four arms. He was definitely named by Rob Liefeld. We have Tempo. But his name is spelled F-O-R-E-A-R-M, and it, it drives me a little batty. Well, he's got four forearms. Then, then it should be four forearm. Maybe that's his full name, but Forearm is just a nickname. It's short. I thought his name was Mike. His name is also Mike. Mike, four forearm, mix something or other. That's his name. We also have Tempo, who has time powers. She actually quit the MLF because they sucked and she's not evil, but I guess the anti-mutant uh, sentiment going on has brought her back. Whatever. And we have the teleporter Locus, last seen in X-Force number 30. So this is kind of a random, not greatest hits version of the MLF, but just, you know, different people from different eras. Uh, you're missing their leader, of course, and that being Moonstar. Yes, yes, she's not there initially, but when Wildside's about to execute one of the cancer-researching hostages, Moonstar psychic arrows that hostage to knock him out, because she's been on the MLF for a long time, and as we've learned, her goal there, in addition to being a double agent, is to prevent them from doing super horrible things and limit them to only doing kind of horrible things. Yay? And before we get any further, let's talk about the art. Adam Polina, we've mentioned, has a style that is a word we use a lot for some artists, exaggerated. People's proportions are stretched and skewed, and their anatomy is a little more extreme, all in service of making them more emotive. You know, like, someone won't just be surprised, they'll have their eyes wide open and their mouth stretched out and their body language really extreme— and for characters like, say, Wildside, who don't look quite human anyway, who are a little extra lean animalistic, Polina really leans into that. It's so much fun. I also appreciate that Polina remembers that if you have multiple arms, you would gesture with all of those arms when things are going on. Like, at one point, Forearm is mad at Dragonus, and so he waggles a finger in her face with one hand, while having the other three hands, like giving her the ban of the hand, the sort of, like, stop, get away from me look at different angles. It's so much fun. And speaking of Dragonus, we alluded to this, but Jay, was it just me that didn't even recognize who the hell she was at first? Like, she looks nothing like she used to. Yeah, I had no, no idea whatsoever. Yeah, because, like, back in the day, she had this scaly green bodysuit and a weird Marvel girl-looking mask and big scaly dragon wings. And, like, she made out with Cannonball while he was uh, tied up that one time. And this is just 
a lady with different colored hair wearing the world's tiniest bikini and thigh-high boots. No wings. Like, she's still dragonous, but she doesn't have dragon stuff about her. Miles, I've read comic books before. That is not the world's tiniest bikini. Uh, that's a really good point. Uh, it's, it's very small, but yes, it, it, it could be smaller. I don't know what's going on with Dragonus. I don't know why she's here. She's just here, I think, to be even meaner and more sadistic than Wildside, which is saying something. I was gonna evoke Josie and the Pussycats and be like, she's here because she's in the comic, but this is the comic, so. <laughs> it's totally the comic. And speaking of looks, uh, one interesting touch here is that Mirage, Danielle Moonstar, is not wearing her Mutant Liberation Front supervillain outfit. She's just wearing, like, a fringed vest and boots, jorts, and a headband. She's in casual clothing. Like, she's getting less and less mlf as time goes on. She's quiet quitting. She's quiet quitting. She is only doing the requirements of her job in a mutant terrorist organization. She's not going above and beyond. She's not working weekends for the MLF. She turns off her phone when she's not in the office. <laughs> How dare she? I, Good for okay, her. Okay, that whole fucking quiet quitting thing, what the hell? Like, you're it's, quiet It's quitting? complete bullshit. Oh, I hate it so much. Yes. Like, no, if, if your job has requirements, just do the requirements. And that's fine. That's why they're the requirements. Yeah, there's a reason that the requirements of jobs are contractually specified and that, for instance, unions negotiate those down to a level of detail. It's because you are exchanging your labor and skills for currency. It is an exchange. It is not something that you... you do out of passion like if you're passionate about your job great that's awesome if you would do it for free um maybe don't tell your boss that and screw over the rest of us but like it, it's 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 a necessary byproduct of, of living in a capitalist society and the idea that you should that that you should be doing more than the baseline of what is expected of you in, in an exchange that is functionally, that you are functionally coerced into by, again, the requirements of a capitalist society is nonsense. Like, as far as I can tell, what is meant by the phrase quiet quitting is doing a perfectly adequate job while maintaining some degree of boundaries. Seriously. You know, if someone in the MLF was going to start a union, I bet it would be forearm. Yeah, I think it would totally be forearm. Absolutely. So the MLF is here in this cancer research facility. Uh, based on some intel that they got, that this place was just a front for scientists developing a new version of the legacy virus, the mutant targeting AIDS allegory. But all the scientists are saying that's not true at all. Mirage and Forearm are wondering if they're being set up. Wildside's just getting off on power and violence, which Dragonus is also into. And as things get tenser, I appreciate that Locust, their teleporter, just says, fuck this, quits the team like she's freaking Sunfire, and just teleports away, leaving them all stranded. Good for her. Interesting side note about Locust. We haven't seen her in a long time, we mentioned. In this issue, she's still got the long blonde ponytail, but she has much darker skin than she was shown with the last time. Apparently, there were rumors when Locust first appeared that she was a resurrected magic in disguise, Ileana Rasputin, since she had somewhat similar teleportation powers, and Ileana had died around that time. And so those rumors continued that Locus having darker skin here and darker hair in a later appearance were just to differentiate her from magic, to make it clear that was not the case. But I guess as people asked about that, there was a letters page a little bit later on that just said that Locus got a tan, and that's all there was to it. So uh, there you go. I love the rumor mill around these various conspiracies, like, that don't necessarily go anywhere, but people just come up with more and more complex reasons why something might be the case. I used to love that shit when I was a kid. We would talk about this kind of thing in the playground all the time. Wow. Did, did you do it, like, while you were climbing on the jungle gym, or did you just, like, find a corner and trade conspiracy theories? Oh, I was not very athletic at all. It was all about corners and conspiracies. See, I was not particularly athletic, but I liked climbing things. So I'd, I'd bring a book with me and just like climb to the top of something and, and curl up and read. Not bad. I also remember that semester you were in gym class and you could set your own personal fitness goals and you just decided to get more flexible and would fall asleep in stretches. Yes, I, that was very calculated. It worked out really well. You're really flexible, or at least you were back then. I was back then. I have, I have lost a lot of that flexibility now, but I'm still, I'm still definitely more flexible than I would be without having had that semester of getting into some kind of complicated stretch and then falling asleep for 50 minutes a day. I was always envious of your ability to fall asleep so easily while in, you know, pain. Yeah, massive sleep deprivation helps. <laughs> One of the few areas where it does. So things are getting more and more tense here in the Wakeman Research Center. 
And Mirage, looking at one of the many monitors showing the news, sees that there's a new news network on site, which clearly consists of Domino, Siren, and Sunspot wearing newscaster disguises. Unfortunately, speaking of coloring character skin, this is an example of the trend that would increase of Sunspot being drawn with skin not that much darker than even, like, Sirens. Makes me sad. Yeah, that's really unfortunate. So Mirage, trying to buy time, convinces Wildside, who's sort of taken over the MLF, that maybe if they bring a news crew in here, that'll give the whole team some time to figure out what to do before Operation Zero Tolerance moves in. Commander Krasnova of OZT does not negotiate with criminals, but Domino, in disguise, as always, is a fast talker. Look, if those hostages die because you're too proud to consider a nonviolent alternative, how do you think that's going to play with Mr. and Mrs. America? Remember the Waco crisis? It doesn't take much to turn public opinion. Next thing you know, Zero Tolerance has lost its support, and you're out of a holy crusade. So, in they go... Unfortunately, Dragonus immediately recognizes the reporters as really being X-Force. Well, as we will find out, did Grezhnova. It's true. And there's a big fight, but Danny breaks it up. She's always very good at getting people's attention. That was one of her excellent qualities as one of the co-leaders of the New Mutants. And reminds everybody, hey, Operation Zero Tolerance is the real problem. The MLF and X-Force need to team up. They need to team up immediately, in fact, because three of the scientists who have been planted inside the um, research center turn into Prime Sentinels. Prime Sentinels, as you may remember, are people who have cyborg implants that let them go all sentinel-ized. It's like a transformation kind of thing. So they're sentinels, but human-sized, and they look more human, and they appear to be just as powerful as, like, the giant toboggan hat-wearing sentinels. Now, these three knew they were Prime Sentinels. They were biding their time and waiting for an opening. We'll find out later that some of the Prime Sentinels are actually sleeper agents who have no idea that they've been modified until they're activated. So this whole thing is all a big setup. Operation Zero Tolerance planted that story about the legacy virus being redeveloped here in this cancer center to lure in the MLF, to trap them. And in fact, when Richter, Shatterstar, and Meltdown, who are in the news van watching this whole scene lose contact with their friends, and head out to help, they're just attacked by Grasnova, who, no surprise, is herself a prime sentinel, and zaps the crap out of them. It brings us to the second plotline we're going to be looking at, Cable and Caliban. Yeah, last time we saw Caliban, he was having seizures randomly, and his intelligence was fluctuating wildly, like he'd be playing a beautiful classical music piece on the piano, and then forget what he was doing and have a seizure. Something is up with him. And we've seen Caliban's intelligence change over the years. Like, he was originally a Morlock who, while not educated, was perfectly intelligent— And he got souped up by Apocalypse, which made him, like, a big monstrous thing. His mind stayed the same mostly, aside from being more aggressive. And it wasn't until Jeff Loeb's run of X-Force and of Cable when Caliban got that whole gentle giant stereotype. So I appreciate that John Francis Moore understands that Caliban has been written extremely inconsistently and is making a plotline based on that. Yeah, that's a really good touch, and it's a really good way to bring those disparate versions of the character together. What's also a good touch and a good way of bringing things together is the fact that after Cable puts Caliban to bed with a whole bunch of stuffed animals, Caliban's adorable, Archangel shows up to check in. Because Archangel was also heavily, heavily altered into a killing machine by Apocalypse. And Cable's whole life has been defined by fighting Apocalypse. He got the techno-organic virus as an infant because of Apocalypse. Like, These are three characters from very different plot lines who have interacted with Apocalypse in very different times and contexts, and yet they're all coming together to kind of talk through what's going on with Caliban. It's kind of cool. It also is playing nicely on the fact that Archangel's metal wings just burst, revealing that his feathered wings had grown back underneath. And that's happening simultaneously to what's happening to Caliban. Is it related? We'll go into that, but it's just a neat little bit of continuity. It makes the X-Men universe feel so big and rich. It's a very, very good touch. Speaking of Apocalypse, inside, while Cable is talking to Archangel, Ozymandias shows up to watch Caliban sleep. I feel like we should remind folks who Ozymandias is, because he hasn't been around for a while. This fucking guy. He's Apocalypse's scribe, I guess. He was the guy that tried to fight Apocalypse, and Apocalypse was like, haha, 
The best revenge is turning you into an immortal being of stone who is cursed to carve the entire history of everything about me into big rock pillars. So that's Ozymandias. That's what he does. He carves things into big rock pillars. He does some sort of general purpose administrative work for Apocalypse too, including a lot of sort of heraldry, um, you know, forewarning, things like that. He can also animate Rock into, like, different statues of different heroes and villains. He can do a lot. He's got some mind control. We'll see that. He's a weird dude. He's got his own font. His speech bubbles look like letters carved into stone. Like, Ozymandias almost feels like four or five different characters just sort of crammed into one, and yet, I don't mind. Yeah, he's got a lot going on, but he's always peripheral, so it's never that pertinent. Yeah. Man, it sucks to be Ozymandias. I don't know, he gets his own font. I wish I had my own font. Well, the narrator doesn't get their own font in this book, but they do say some cool shit. This will be the last night Caliban sleeps in the mansion. Outside, a storm gathers, and no one is safe. That's legit creepy. Well done, John Francis Moore. Tonight will be bad, and tomorrow will be beyond imagining. <laughs> nice. And that leads us to X-Force number 68, Girl Talk. This is written by John Francis Moore, penciled by Pop Mon, inked by Mark Morales and Al Milgram, colored by Marie Javins, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Ed Fear. I don't really know much about Pop Mon, but uh, the pencils in this remind me a lot of the art of Adam Warren of Empowered. Oh it's yeah, absolutely. Very, yeah, those very large expressive mouths and that slightly manga style. So we're going to start here again with, with the X-Force plotline. X-Force and the MLF uh, fight the Prime Sentinels side by side, but they are massively outgunned, even though there are only three of the Prime Sentinels. I really like that during this fight, into the usual increasingly battle-damaged clothing, Domino's cover-up makeup that she was wearing while she was disguised as a reporter is like getting abraded gradually away, so her eye spot is showing through more and more. Yeah, that's a really nice touch. And the Prime Sentinels... I think, like, this is the point where they get really scary, because it becomes clear that they're not only effective sentinels, like, they can adapt, they can attack, you know, they can they can do all the things we're used to sentinels doing, but they're also driven by very, very human zealotry. Whatever part of our humanity was sacrificed to our maker was done in order to ensure the genetic integrity of the human race. This is war. Brutal. Violent. Unrelenting. This is very Powers of Ten, the idea of humanity sacrificing its, well, humanity to technology just because they want to combat mutants. The fact that they're saying they want to protect humanity, but in fact they're decreasing the humanity in themselves and in those around them. It's a pretty good metaphor. And they also appear to have some sweet team-up moves. So they join together and they're building up clearly to something, and Domino decides they cannot be allowed to finish whatever they're doing. So she pulls out a bit of plastique and uses it to clear the way for the others to escape leaving her to be captured on the other side. The rest of the team, and also Forearm, a.k.a. the member of the MLF who sucks much less, managed to get away on Domino's advice, past the Prime Sentinels outside. Forearm feels really crappy. I mean, Mirage was his friends. They were tight in the MLF, and she betrayed him. And Sunspot feels kind of the same way, because Mirage was a close friend of his back in the New Mutants days as well, and... While she didn't betray him, she certainly let him think she betrayed him for a really long time. Yeah, but he was Rainfire. Oh, it's so complicated. He no, he wasn't Rainfire. He they, they, so Rainfire was sort of a clone. It's yeah, it's 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 excessively complicated even for us. We'll get to that, and not even that much farther after this in X Force. But but at this point, he still thinks he was Rainfire. I don't know. It's ambiguous. I mean, we know that Cable separated him from the Rainfire persona, but. You know, there's enough content in this episode. We'll get to Rainfire later. The point is, Forearm says, fuck this, with four middle fingers, and leaves. The rest of them decide to rescue their teammates. The next time we see Forearm, actually, is going to be in a Wolverine issue, where he dies in an arena. But it's cool. He'll be fine for no reason and show up soon after that in a different comic. Continuity's a little dicey around here. So what's left of the team escapes in the news van, um, leaving Domino again to be captured, and... Cleaning up on site is, is Commander Ekaterina uh, Gryaznova, who we met before, and she recognizes Domino and decides, I'll see to this one personally. And after brushing off the FBI, Gryaznova calls in a report to Bastion, 
And she pointedly omits the capture of Domino in this report. Like, she is explicitly lying to him and claiming that Domino got away. And we haven't really seen anyone do this before. Like, Bastion, the leader of Operation Zero Tolerance, is terrifying. He's got everybody cowed. So the fact that Grasnova is playing him for her own ends is actually pretty impressive. I mean, she's terrible, don't get me wrong, but she's impressively terrible. It says a lot about her, and it says a lot about how badly she wants to personally have control over Domino. Domino, who wakes up drugged and is confronted by Grasnova. Um, and Grasnova has a long dossier on Domino's past and a slew of alternate identities, which may or may not be accurate, but there, there's a great montage of all of them. And Popmon has so much fun with this page. We see Domino as a teenage shoplifter, an arena fighter, a security officer, a gambler, an executive, an ambassadorial escort, a mercenary, a superhero. It's such a good page. And Domino claims that about 80% of them weren't her, but it's entirely unclear whether she's lying. Um, and that uncertainty is, is plays very, very well. Yeah, Domino's always been a character who we, we just haven't known much about her. She hasn't been very well defined in terms of who she is as a person versus who she is in X-Force. Like, we even saw that in her miniseries, you know? It wasn't entirely about her. And John Francis Moore seems to be really leaning into Domino as this, like, manipulative woman of many faces, you know, who's on different sides of the law at different times, has her own agendas. Like, John Francis Moore, it seems like he's keeping the personality elements that have worked in so many of these characters, and fleshing out the ones that didn't have a lot going on. We see that a little bit with Siren as well. Now, there is one specific case that Domino can't deny, and that is that in El Salvador, three years ago, Domino infiltrated a top-secret research compound run by a rogue CIA faction. She was there to rescue a kidnapped scientist, but while she was there... She blew up a prototype drone which was neurally linked to its operator, that being Ekaterina Griznova, who ended up comatose when Domino destroyed the drone with an EMP. And when Griznova woke up from her coma ten months later, she discovered she'd been transformed into a Prime Sentinel, intended to be a sleeper agent. You know, somebody who would just go about their life normally until she was activated, at which point she'd go all robot assassiny. It was unclear whether that transformation had taken place before or after her coma. Yeah. So, eventually, Grasnova decided she was just going to embrace Bastion's anti-mutant crusade. But this whole thing, we've mentioned it already once before this episode, about Prime Sentinels potentially being sleeper agents. Remember that. That's going to be a big deal. Yeah, well, Grasnova embraced Bastion's crusade specifically in hopes that it would lead her to Domino. And now that she's got her, she's got some very specific plans, and the next time Domino wakes up, she's on an operating table about to be put under. That's the end of her for this issue, but that brings us to Sledge and Warpath. We mentioned Warpath when we were in the in the intro as being generally absent, and that's because Warpath made a deal with a weird dude named Sledge who claims he's got information on the destruction of Warpath's home hometown and, and tribe. Yeah, Warpath's recent girlfriend, Risk, it turned out was working for Sledge, and her job was to bring Warpath to Sledge, so uh, now he's there. But, um, so Sledge, Sledge is hanging out at home. He's watching the goings-on of the last few issues on TV as Warpath gets ready to make good on their deal. Okay, this is weird. Sledge has these special speech bubbles with sort of dripping, slimy, like, lower parts. Like, they're a little bit liquid. I don't know. I've been trying to think of what he talks like, and I think it must be like Jason Funderburker from Over the Garden Wall. Just like, same old story. Somebody's gotta be the scapegoat. Too bad Xavier's kids are going to wind up as martyrs. Better to keep a low profile and stay alive. I'll buy that. Okay, good. What Sledge has, though, and what Warpath is now dressed in, is a fancy spacesuit for interdimensional travel. I love this suit. It looks, like, comfortable. Like, it's half wetsuit and half sweater material, and it's bright orange, and I just want to wear that around the house. Like, I want that to be my work-from-home outfit. I, I want to point out now the immense, immense self-restraint I am exercising to not go on a massive tangent about the textiles of spacesuits. You were just at the, the, the Sheep and Textile uh, Festival, was it? Uh, sheep and Wool. Oh, yeah. Did they have any spacesuits like that there? They did not. Oh, if they did, I hope the sheep would be wearing them, but they didn't. No, I got to pet a lot of sheep, though. Are they as soft as they look? They look real soft. I've never pet a sheep. Some of them are. Some of them are kind of gross and matted until, you know, you, you like, 
clean and card their wool and stuff, but some of them are super soft. There was one really, really good one who basically looked like a giant woolly ginger snap and felt like a plush toy. I want to hang out with that sheep. Yeah, no, she's a really good sheep. There were also some camelids who just judged the hell out of me, and honestly, I probably deserved it. They know what you did. No, they don't fucking care. They just know they're better than everyone else in the room. Oh, yeah, well, that's fair enough. Like, have you ever seen a llama? Uh, I think so. Yeah, well, um, in addition to the fact that they will fuck you up if you piss them off, they're just they're just intensely fundamentally arch. So, arch llama, like archangel, do they have flechettes? Probably. They did have little warning signs all over their pens in the area where you could come, like, talk to them, being like, don't let your dogs near, they kick, and only pet them on the neck, do not touch any other part of their body or they will fuck you up. Because of the flechettes? Probably so. Anyway. I'll stick some pictures of them in the visual companion to this episode. So, why is it that Warpath is being sent on this mission for Sledge? Well, the last person to make this jump lost their mind, and Sledge thinks that Warpath can handle it because he's already used to dealing with heightened senses and he's got superhuman endurance. Yeah, because Warpath is going to get sent to another goddamn dimension where one of Sledge's buddies got lost. And man, Sledge Sledge has makes some poor choices and friends, as we'll find out shortly. He's got a pretty cool teleportation room. There's this awesome page that Popmon draws that just has so many, like, pipes and joints and rivets all as part of this big machine. And there's this angle that's, like, coming at the characters top down, just sort of cutting through the tangle of pipes to see what's up. It's just really fun. I, I, I really enjoy creative comic book angles that just emphasize, like, what you're supposed to feel about a given scene. As for what's on the other side of that portal, we'll find out in X-Force number 69, Roadside Attractions. Nice. This issue is written by John Francis Moore, penciled by Adam Polina, inked by Mark Morales, colored by Gloria Vasquez and Marie Javins, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And, I don't know, let's start with Domino. Let's start in Oklahoma. In a scene straight out of the intro to Silent Hill 1 or Resident Evil 2, we see a big truck almost hitting a figure standing in the middle of the road. The truck is driven by a guy named Spencer Beaumont. He's a big mustache guy whose wife left him, whose dog died, who just got an IRS audit. Aw shit, this is a named minor character with a few random backstory details being told to us in captions. It's not just a named minor character, it's a kind named minor character, which is usually a death sentence. But fortunately, Spencer's actually going to be okay. I wonder if that's just because his life is already super terrible, and John Francis Moore didn't have the heart to like also kill him to show how badass a bad guy was, the way Chris Claremont would have. I'd like to think he gets together with the truck stop lady. Yeah. Yeah, maybe so. Anyway, it's uh, Domino who's in the road, but she looks really different. Her head is shaved, her body's all emaciated, she's wearing this, like, simple jumpsuit, she's got this long surgery scar on the back of her neck, she looks rough. And credit, so much credit to Polina here, her body language is completely, completely different. Like, the fact that she's almost unrecognizable isn't a byproduct so much of the changes to her appearance as the fact that she just she stands and moves in a completely different way than she did before. Yeah, she just seems broken. And what also emphasizes that is the caption after the truck barely screeches to a stop in front of her and doesn't hit her. In these pre-dawn hours, it is not Domino's one-time unbeatable combination of outrageous fortune and phenomenal combat skill that saves her life. It is sheer providence. And I love that the caption doesn't say, Domino's lost her powers and she's not badass anymore. It just implies it based on what happens. There's just that word, one time. Like, that's some surprisingly subtle stuff for an issue of freaking X-Force. Although at the same time, the truck does stop within inches of her, which implies that if her powers are gone, there's still, you know, there might still be some residual functioning there. Or Spencer's got a real heavy foot for that brake pedal. But, uh, yeah... It's well done. And Spencer is furious. Like, he pulls out a crowbar, yells at her to get the hell out of the road to kill herself somewhere else. But as soon as he realizes that she's really in trouble, he just softens completely. Like, you see the crowbar go down and his hand loosen around it. Again, beautiful, subtle details in the art. And he just wants to help. And we'll see more of Spencer and Domino later. I want to talk a little bit about Polina's art. Because it's been—we've seen it before go from okay to good— And here it just feels like it's leveled up massively. 
I agree. Like what he does with body language, what he does with layouts in these issues is unprecedented based on what we've seen of his before. And I, I, I wonder, given just like the steepness of this, whether before he was just working on really tight rushes. Maybe, yeah. Or maybe he just didn't have as good of a dynamic with, say, Jeff Loeb and had a better one with John Francis Moore. I don't know. But yeah, I agree. There is a change. Let's go from here to an abandoned granary where Mirage, Sunspot, and Siren are hiding. This is, a, this is an abandoned granary that is also a, a shield safe house, hence the giant video calling computer in the corner. So it turns out shield couldn't interfere with the whole terrorist thing because another agency is blocking them, presumably Operation Zero Tolerance. But Mirage can still call GW Bridge, the head of S.H.I.E.L.D., for help. He's a big goatee-wearing badass, and he's wearing heart pajamas when she calls him. Do you think if you're a big badass masculine dude, it's more embarrassing in a cartoon or a comic to be wearing heart boxers or heart pajamas? I think GW Bridge is a man capable of owning either. Yeah, that's what true toughness is. Not being embarrassed by your heart items of clothing. So now that they have some information on where their friends are, they're off to save them. Griaznova's convoy of trucks, where their friends have been captured and are being transported, though, they're doing their own thing. They've stopped to meet up with a trio of scientists, and Griaznova is handing the other members of X-Force over to those scientists. Again, she's doing this without the knowledge of the rest of Operation Zero Tolerance via basically a private deal with these guys that she'll let them exper- experiment on the captives before returning them to OZT proper. Yeah, she even uses a little memory wipe device on all of her soldiers. Like, she is just doing this alone. And it turns out one of the scientists is a guy named Dr. Joshua, one of the people who experimented on Sunspot back when Sunspot had been captured by Gideon back in freaking X-Force number 15. That is a deep cut. It really is. Wow. So the conscious members of X-Force have a big fight with Griaznova, who at this point goes into full Prime Sentinel mode and starts kicking lots and lots of ass. Like, she has the ability to counter all these different mutant powers. I mean, she can do all the things a Sentinel can do. I think it's easy to forget that Sentinels are actually genuinely dangerous. They specifically exist to, like, take out X-Men-style characters. But she is human enough to get taken down by Mirage's psychic arrow. The scientists run the hell away, and X-Force tries to figure out what to do with their prisoner. While they're muddling through that particular ethical dilemma, Cable and Caliban are escaping from a different cadre of OZT troops. Those are the ones invading the Xavier Mansion, and Cable and Caliban have escaped through the tunnels underneath the mansion. Man, the X-Teams have gotten a lot of use out of those tunnels. Like, do we ever find out why the X-Mansion was built on top of them? I don't think we do, do we? Was it built on top of them, or were they added later? I think it was built on top of them. I think they're kind of, they've been around for a long time. Uh, Maybe it's just, I mean, a lot happens around here. You know, there's a freaking Nagari demon cairn nearby that Cyclops blows up while he's mad once. It's also probably fair to assume that anyone that wealthy in this area of the country who's been around for that long was at some point smuggling something. Probably smuggling something. Possibly smuggling Nagari Cairnstones. Yeah, it's a hot market. Cable volunteers to blow up the tunnels behind them so Operation Zero Tolerance can't catch them, leaving a scared Caliban all alone. And we'll get to what Cable does in a future episode, the Cable Operation Zero Tolerance episode— But, man, poor Caliban. He has reverted, like, to a full childlike state at this point. He's got his stuffy. To feel braver, he pulls out a signed photograph of Kitty Pride, who he had a crush on years ago, which makes me wonder if she learned how to give gifts from Wolverine. You remember that one time Wolverine gave a signed picture of himself to Nightcrawler for Nightcrawler's birthday? Oh, yes. I always remember that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, Logan was Kitty's mentor, so I guess it makes sense. Skins. And that's it for those two, so on to Warpath's adventures in another dimension. Oh man, he is diving headfirst into pink psychedelia, and it is amazing. He says it feels like he's trapped in a lava lamp, and when he lands on a pink planet, like, it looks like it's made of bubblegum, it's all sticky and stuff. It's just so weird. I love that Polina's getting a chance to draw this bizarre stuff. It's weird, and it's very fun, and it's got very, very strong, um... Dave Cockrum Nightcrawler miniseries vibes. It also reminds me a little of Bee and Puppy Cat, tiny weird planet with strange characters on it. Fair enough. On this planet is Warpath's old cat, Coyote, or Coyote, depending on where you're from. 
Um, it's, it's not really him. Um, it's actually a local whose true self would drive a human mad. So he's, he's pulled a form that Warpath will be comfortable with out of Warpath's head. And um, the Not-Cat leads him to the Vanisher. Remember that guy? The Vanisher, from one of, like, the very first few Silver Age issues of the X-Men, one of the many villains who the X-Men defeated when Professor Xavier just wiped the dude's mind. The guy that was the thief mastermind that Boom Boom worked for before she joined the X-Teams, who ran the Fallen Angels in that wonderful miniseries. I love the Vanisher. He's a total shit, and I love him. By now, he may already have syphilis. He may already have syphilis. We don't know. Maybe he was having some relations with the weird cartoon dog-rabbit things that are surrounding him that he's reading a story to. I really love the story he's reading. I suspect he may be taking some liberties with what's written on those pages. And then the bothersome professor told his gullible little mutant students, we must stop the Vanisher from making an honest living with his God-given talent. And so he sent those five meddling brats to spoil a simple theft of classified Defense Department secrets. I love that he's just telling this rapt audience of cartoon animals, like, the story of his first appearance from his perspective. But, uh, yeah, so thing one, this dimension, this weird pink bubblegum planet, apparently is the Vanisher's in-between teleportation dimension, kind of like how Magic teleports through Limbo and then to her destination, or Nightcrawler teleports through that Brimstone dimension and then to his destination. We'll learn a lot more about that in Chuck Austin's run. Uh, but the Vanisher is stuck here because the cartoon animals are going to tear him to shreds if he stops telling them stories. Yeah, he's, uh, we'll, we'll find out next issue that he's been recapping old episodes of Taxi to keep them off his back. Yeah. And so when Warpath shows up and tells the Vanisher it's time to go, the cartoon dog rabbit cat thinks don't want the Vanisher to leave, and they all, like, bare their super giant teeth and super giant claws and attack, and that takes us to X-Force number 70, Transitions. It's written by John Francis Moore, penciled by Adam Polina, inked by Mark Morales, colored by Marie Javins, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And oh, this cover. This cover has a few members of X-Force sadly walking away from Cable, who's in the background, while carrying travel bags. This is, of course, an homage to Uncanny X-Men number 138, which featured Cyclops leaving the team, and which is one of the most echoed covers in all of X-Men history. Where else have we seen this show up? Oh, I doubt this is a complete list, but we have Uncanny X-Men 151 with Kitty leaving, New Mutants 99 with Sunspot leaving, X-Force 44 with Cannonball leaving, Wolverine number 65 with Wolverine leaving, Uncanny X-Men 318 with Jubilee leaving, X-Men 57 with Xavier leaving, Gen X number 1 with the whole team leaving, Ultimate X-Men number 80 with Wolverine leaving again, and X-Factor Volume 3 number 28 with Wolfsbane leaving. So let's wrap up Warpath first. Um, So Warpath... Gets gets swamped by by the apparent dogs until the Vanisher tells him to tell a story, then they'll stop attacking, which turns out to be true. That's that's all they want, and we'll resolve that one later. Um, and jump now over to Cable and Caliban. Cable, having finished up with whatever he was doing in his own series, uh, we'll get to that really soon, like in maybe the next episode. He's basically doing Home Alone. He's basically doing Home Alone. He comes back to find Caliban huddled in the tunnels, and Caliban tells Cable to leave, saying that nobody can help him. And at that point, Ozymandias shows up, or shows himself to Cable. He's been there talking to Caliban, and tells Cable that Caliban's gotta go back to Apocalypse, and in doing so, he also puts some kind of telepathic whammy on Cable, such that Cable will believe that he left Caliban safe in the care of a trusted friend. Oh, man. Those stories where, like, people are forced to forget important things about the people they care about always get me. I cried so hard at that one point in Doctor Who. Quick hop over to X-Force. With Grisnova down, the team busts into the vehicle and rescues Meltdown, Shatterstar, and Richter, and they're not equipped for prisoners, so they leave Grisnova behind. Yeah, Meltdown almost blows Grisnova up. She is furious. But at the last second, instead, she just time bombs the convoy. Guess I just needed to blow something up. I feel better now. John Francis Moore gets most characters right, including Tabitha. Domino, for her part, has been trying to reach the X-Folk, mostly via a payphone at a truck stop, but every number she's tried has been disconnected. Domino, lady, you've been with the X-Teams for long enough to know that phone calls just do not ever work out. Fortunately, X 
next force has been able to track her, and they touch down in the pack rat to pick her up at the truck stop um, in Oklahoma. She gives Spencer a kiss and heads out. Oh, it's really sweet. She says, You're a good guy, Spence. Thanks for not running me over. Hey, I didn't even know your name. Domino, Beatrice, Tamara. Pick one you like, or make one up. I'm easy that way. I am in love with John Francis Moore's Domino. You and Spencer the Trucker both. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, so Spencer doesn't die. That's his last appearance, and, and he's fine. For now. Mm, for now. So, uh, yeah, nobody really knows what happened to Domino, including her, aside from that it was some kind of brain surgery, and nothing feels right. But there's no time for a fun reunion, because someone is tracking them, and it looks like it's probably Operation Zero Tol- but no, no, it's Cable. Yeah, he just stole one of their airships. Uh, it's fine. Yay! Everybody's back together, uh, except for Caliban, and except for Warpath. And he leads X-Force to one of his safe houses in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. Oh, hey, we used to live around there. Right? I have a tattoo of those. It's a real pretty part of the country. Domino and Cable, once they land, have kind of a rough reunion, and she pushes him away and ultimately leaves. She says, Look at me. I'm shaking. Whatever they did to me on that operating table has thrown me off center. And until I regain my sense of balance, I'm no good to anyone. Not in the field. Not in a relationship. I hope you can understand. And that's it for Domino for a while. She goes off on her own, and we're not going to see much of her. Cable, for his part, heads back in and tells the kids that they're all splitting up and going underground. He's got spare identities prepared for all of them for just a time like this. X-Force actually went underground with fake identities once before. That was when they lived in Murder World, uh, before Age of Apocalypse, and it lasted like five minutes because then the Jeff Loeb run started and reset the status quo. Also, X-Factor just went underground through a different method, which also lasted like five minutes. Well, X-Force this time decides they are not even going to try. They are absolutely not interested in going underground. They're going to stay and fight. Richter gets fed up with Cable being a jerk again in his eyes, takes Shatterstar, and they leave the book too. And Siren tells Cable, Seems to me that with all our training, the training that you gave us, we can handle whatever comes our way. And Cable concedes the point and heads off on his own, leaving X-Force to their own devices. And to the official start of the road trip era, which after reading the last couple of arcs with his creative team, I am incredibly psyched to get to. Oh god, same. Oh, I'm just... If, if there's been one big surprise about this entire podcast, it's how often X-Force is way better than we expect it to be. It's delightful. Like, it's, it's, it's definitely got some low lows, but its highs are very high. Mm-hmm. You know who also has high highs? Our listeners, and they've got questions. So Matt emailed us to ask, A character named Cerebro recently showed up in Marauders. I've read a lot of X-Men comics over the years, but the 2099 book is a complete blind spot for me. What's her deal? Uh, yeah, so listeners, if you haven't been following Marauders, when this character Cerebra shows up, she mentions that she's from the year 2099. So you would think that means that she'd be from the old X-Men 2099 team from the 90s, like she mentions being one of the X-Men. Not actually true. So she actually only appeared in one single issue of a comic before showing up in Marauders, Volume 2, Number 5. That was an issue of this year's Spider-Man 2099 Exodus miniseries. In that issue, she's from Earth 2099, which is not, as you might think, where the original Marvel 2099 took place. That was Earth 928. Earth 2099 is actually a mix of Earth 928 and a couple of other adjacent, related universes— so I guess that means that she's canonically kind of from the 2099 universe and kind of not, but she was not a member of X-Men 2099. As for her deal, she can find and back up mutant genetics and stuff, kind of like Cerebro can, which in the Krakoa era is a big deal. That's a big part of how mutant resurrection works. As opposed to Cerebra the Sentinel from Extraordinary X-Men, who was unrelated to any of that. So let's disambiguate. So uh, there you go. You asked a simple question— and I made it more complicated, because X-Men. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, what's your favorite non-canon ship? Ooh, I'd have to say the Flying Dutchman. <laughs> I, uh, I think they mean, like, you know, the, the Tumblr kind. 
Oh, then Storm and all the ladies. All of them. So, I don't know, is that still non-canon? Like, are Storm and Yukio still non-canon? It just seems so obvious. It it really does. And yet. God damn it, Marvel. Mwah. For me, uh, mine also involves ladies. I have really come around, as much as I hated the idea at first, to the idea of Jean Grey and Emma Frost being involved. Like, they have a fucked up history, which I think was part of my objection, but they have also both changed a ton, um, even if those types of changes were quite different between the two of them. They're both strong-willed, they both care a ton about the people around them, but they express those things in super different ways, which makes for a fun dynamic. And, I mean, it's Krakoa these days. Like, everybody's getting over old rivalries and trying new stuff, and, I mean— Come on. And do you remember that scene in House of X uh, toward the end where Logan shares a beer with Scott and Jean shortly before they became canonically a thruple? Uh, and then Jean passes one of the beers to Emma with a meaningful look? Like, I really thought they were going to go there, and I don't think they've been explicit about it at all or even really followed up much in that direction. We can dream. I, I feel like we should give an, an honorary mention to um, Sunspot and Cannonball, by the way. Yeah, yeah, I think we just talked about that in a recent episode, but, you know, whatever their dynamic is, like, it all works. And if that was going to be their dynamic, that would also totally work, and I'd be totally into that. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. So here is, hey, it's ZZ105. Thank you for listening to Six Hours of Atonal Mumbling, accompanied by the Marimba, only on ZZ105. Today's program is brought to you by the DaCosta Foundation for Prestigious Nonsense, and by listeners like Casey Mace, whose generous donation enabled not only the programming you just heard, but the mescaline that inspired our staff to select it. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode alongside original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please, rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, it's Cable at the X-Mansion. Home Alone. <laughs>